Welcome to Halakha Hour here on JRoot Radio on Wednesday afternoon, live 2 to 3 p.m. This is the Halakha Hour where we discuss the Halakhot, the background of the Halakhot, the details of the Halakhot, and the practical applications of these Halakhot. We are airing on Wednesday, Hey Nisan. And um, just to Always, as usual, we'll just give you the numbers to the station. And then before we get to the actual class, before we describe the actual class today, the numbers to the station are, if you want to call in, 718-683-5858. Today's class, we'll be discussing koshering the kitchen. All the things that we need to know about koshering the kitchen. Um, we do have somebody here in the studio who will be taking questions. We may not be able to put you on the air but definitely, if you call in, we'll be able to answer your question. We'll be able to take down your question, and if it's on the subject that we're speaking about, then we'll bring it up. As at the shame, we'll ask it live, and we'll hopefully answer it if we're able to answer it. To text in your question, which is the probably most guaranteed way to get your questions answered, is three four seven nine two seven eight three nine eight. If you do call in for about a question regarding how to kosher anything in the house. Make sure that you leave a number if you really need an answer back. Because like I said, we may not be able to answer you um, on the air live. So if you call in, if you, excuse me, if you do not, if you do not get your answer on the air, we'll get back to you off the air and uh, give you back your answer. The other numbers that we need to know is how to listen to the class. The number to call in to listen is 712-432-4217 or 718-506-9099. You can also listen on jrootradio.com. You can also download the JRoot Radio Pro app if you don't have it yet, and you can listen and watch live also on the internet, jrootradio.com. We, we have live streaming right now from this wonderful library that we have over here. And with that, we'll get to our class. Before we get to the class, it is... The Wednesday after the um, the events that basically shocked the Jewish world, the whole uh, world, pretty much anybody who hears about it, a very, very tragic event that took place on Shabbat. And really, Hazal, it's, it's, you know, it's something really beyond words. The Torah tells us that Nadav and Abihu, who passed away on Rosh Hodesh Nisan as well, when their father found out about it, Aharon Kohen, Veidom Aharon, he, had not, he didn't have what to say, because really, silence is really sometimes speaks much louder than words. And that's pretty much what, what's, what's over here. There's, there's really not much to say. Hazal tell us when a person visits the Bet Abel, a person is supposed to go there and be quiet until the Abel himself, the mourner himself, initiates the conversation. And they tell us that don't think that you're going, you're not doing anything. No, silence is the way a person gets reward in the Beit Abel. The igra of Beit Tamya is Shetika. The reward when a person goes to the house of mourning is to be silent. Because really, when a person has gone through a loss, and over here, it's a very, very tragic loss. As those who spoke about it already have compared it to something that that people went through in the Holocaust, where a person's kimat, his whole family, is gone in an instant. That's something really we don't have what to say. We don't have words to console. We don't have real words to make, to give real nehama. But certainly we have to show our support. 
And of course, this raises a lot of questions by us. Uh, it raises a lot of questions by our children. Personally, my son was in one of the kids' class as well. And therefore, the questions come up, you know, what's going on, what's happening, and all these different types of things. And what should we tell our children? Should we tell them? How should we tell them? They already know about it. How do we address it? Do we ignore it to let it go? I think what Dr. Simcha Cohen said today was, was something really enlightened me, and it was, it's definitely worth repeating. Probably going to repeat this again and again. And he said something regarding children, is that the seriousness of the situation, obviously, makes us very, very sad. And when we see other people who know about it, and we see that they don't feel as sad, we, we, we start to think negatively. We start to think, how could, they, how could they not take this seriously? And he said a very good point. He said, children are not supposed to be, uh, they're not supposed to have this on their head. We as adults, we have this on our heads, we think about this, and yeah, we have to learn how to deal with it. But for children, it's much healthier for them not to have this on their minds, and we shouldn't be bothered to see kids being kids, having fun, playing sports, and playing with their whatever they're playing with. They're children. They're not supposed to be bogged down by all this. But for us as adults, we're the ones who have to learn how to deal with it. And we have to learn and we have to look into ourselves to introspect, to see what we need, what we could take out of this. As one person, one caller mentioned on the radio, and he says, not lama, it's lema. And that's really what it is. We're not here to figure out what God is. You know, some of my uh, students have asked me, you know, why? And I said, if I would know why, I would be God myself. <laughs> I'd, this is when all of us, could basically realize that we're not Hashem. Hashem has decided. Certainly, if on Friday afternoon it was, we would have been asked, what do you think, you know, if we, what should happen on thir on Friday night? Should should this happen? Should not this happen? Should this not happen? Of course, we would all say, no, it should not happen. God decided otherwise. For whatever reason it is, God decided otherwise. And this is where we keep silence. Para Aduma is known as a mitzvah that has no logic it's a hook. It doesn't make sense. The rules of the para aduma contradict all the other rules of Tum'an Tahara. And yet, we do it because that's what God said. And what is para aduma coming to be mechaper for? Or what is it coming to be metahir? Excuse me. What is it coming to purify? It comes to purify a person from Tum'at Mit. Because when it comes to death, things don't make sense. And who and when and how people die, that's doesn't make sense. We are alive, we live, and that's what we try to make sense of. But for those who have passed away, and how they passed away, and when they pass away, that's not in our area. That's what takes God to do. That's Hashem's area. That's Hashem's arena. We have to live with it. We have to live with that decision and understand that we don't understand. But at the same time, although we could answer those questions in our minds, in our intellect, and we could understand, or we could at least realize that, you know what, Hashem knows obviously what's better, and He knows, and obviously He's doing this for the best. I want to share with you a small idea from the parasha, parashat Vayeshev. Torah tells us over there that when Yosef was missing, and Yaakov Abinu didn't know Yosef's whereabouts, it says in the pasuk over there, Vayepk Oto Abiv, simply translating as, that his father wept for him. Who's his father? It means that Yaakov Abinu wept for his son Yosef because he's missing. His favorite son. The one that 
you know, he was waiting for to, to marry Rahel and the leftover from Rahel, Yaqub Abinu was beyond himself. He was crying, he was crying. That's the simple meaning. However, if you look at Rashid, Rashid quotes Hazal, it tells us it's not the Pashut Pshat of the Pasuk, that's not the simple explanation of the Pasuk. Abiv. You know who the father is in this Pasuk? The father is Yitzhak Abinu, who was still alive. The Torah has to tell us that he also cried. Why does the Torah have to mention that Yitzhak Abinu cried? Why does it mention that Yitzhak Abinu, the grandfather of Yaakov Abinu, excuse me, of Yosef Tzaddik, also cried? What do we need to know that for? Says Rashi, it's a hiddush that Yitzhak Abinu cried. Why? Yaakov Abinu, they ha he had a gizera on him. There was a special decree that he had to go through that suffering. As some Mefrashim explained, 22 years he did not do Kibbutz Va'im, so for 22 years Yosef was taken away from him. He had to go through the Gezerah. But eventually it would turn out to be great. It would be great for Yosef because he became Mishneh Melech, second in command to the greatest country at the time. It turned out to be great for the Jewish people at the time because they were able to be taken care of eventually when there was a hunger in the world. And it would be great for the Jewish people forever because eventually coming out of Mitzrayim is what made us the Jewish nation. Yitzhak Abinu foresaw all of this. He knew where Yosef was. He knew exactly what happened to Yosef. And he knew that Yaakov had to go through the suffering. For Yosef, Yaakov, Yitzhak Abinu did not cry. Yitzhak Abinu knew that Yosef, this is going to be for the good. He didn't believe it. He knew it's going to be for the best of Yosef and all the Jewish people. But his son Yaakov who was suffering at the time, who was going through the emotions and he was suffering. He, he, he was mourning and he couldn't get a nehama, he couldn't get any consolence. For him, Yitzhak Abinu cried. He cried for his son who was alive, for Yaakov Abinu. Although we know that these children are in a better place, as their father himself said, these are korbanot, temimot, that's pure, innocent souls, and surely there's no sin that they were taking for. Hazal tell us that, Hashem only punishes when a person reaches the age of 20. That's Dine Shamaim. A person's Hayam Bedin Shamaim only after the age of 20. And certainly under the age of Bar Mitzvah, a person's not even Hayab in Bedin Shalmata, which we don't have today to fulfill any execution. Certainly these children were, did not have their own sins. Certainly they were pure of sins. They were Tamimim. But the parents and the families and the Jewish community that's suffering right now, that's going through the emotions of the painful feelings, we have to cry with them. We have to feel with them also. If it hurt us, it's a message from God to us. And what is the message? Live your day amarat Everybody knows his own areas. Everybody feels like we have to do something. And whether it's universal, not universal, we all should look at ourselves and introspect and see which areas do we need to improve on. If it's Ahdut, if it's Torah, if it's Lashon Hara, whatever it may be. True, there may be sins that we're all aware of that we as a nation do. But as an individual, we all have our areas. We all know what the uh, our sour spots are, what the things that we stumble upon. And this is perhaps something that we should take out of this. That it's a push that we got to, you know, waken up a little bit. Clearly Hashem is sending something of a message. Whatever message you want to say, it's something. It's clearly not something that is good because we feel bad about it when 
we feel bad about it, then Hashem wanted us to feel bad about it, and He's trying to tell us something. He's trying to convey to us something. We don't have Nevi'im to tell us, but we all have our own souls, which are helik from Hashem, and they could tap into in areas that nobody else could tap in, and they could know what other people may not know. We know deep down what it is that we have to fix, and how we should go ahead and fix it, that you could already discuss with your Rabbanim. But if you know of an area, then you have to go and figure out how and make a plan of how to fix it. The only thing is, we have to sit down, put away all distractions, and think, and think properly what it is that we have to do. With that, we'll move on now, Barzat Hashem, to our class, which is dedicated to all the kids, all the children, passed away this past Shabbat, and for the Refua Shalema of the mother Gila Bat Francis, as well as Sephora Bat Gila, Bezat Hashem Shav Refua Shalema Bekarob. The class today, Bezat Hashem, will be on how to kosher the kitchen. Let's begin. Last class we left off about buying utensils, and we said, as the Mishnah brings down, and that's really the Gemara, that the best, best option for koshering your kitchen is to buy new utensils. Get everything new from beginning, from top to bottom, if you could do that. The only thing is, it's usually not so easy, easily done. We all have to use something in the kitchen. If you're wealthy enough, or Hashem has blessed you, that you're able to have a separate kitchen for Pesach, Ashrecha or Matoblak, you should jump for joy. But it's usually not so simple. It's not so easy. And as a result, we have to know what we need to do in order to kosher our kitchen for Pesach. You don't have to kosher anything else. Only areas where food will be or food will be made, that's what you have to kosher. Today, Barzat Hashem, we'll be discussing these halachot and we'll be speaking about the terminologies that are usually used in areas of kashrut. And Barzat Hashem, we hope to clarify these terminologies that we should be familiar with them, that every time we hear them, these terminologies come up Time and time again, although Pesach comes once a year, Kashrut is an everyday situation, everyday issue. It comes up all the time. We always have these issues, whether we go away from home or where we are home. Certainly those who are involved in commercial kitchens have to know all these terminologies and that you should know what's going on in Halakha and the terminologies that are used. But as we'll begin first with some terminologies that are found in Halakha that we should know what they mean and their implications and Bazat Hashem, their practical applications will be when we go to the practical part of the class, which is how to kosher the kitchen. We must understand first why we have to kosher the kitchen, and we begin with a few terminologies. Number one we'll be discussing is beliot. Beliot means flavor that gets absorbed into utensils. These utensils can be anything from pottery to silverware to counters, whatever it may be. Biliaot is when the flavor goes in. Basically, it's as follows. When a person uses hot, hot liquids or something is very hot to the point that it's called the yatsolated bow. Yatsolated bow ranges between maybe, let's say, 110 degrees and higher. Different post scheme, different opinions. But when there's a flavor, when, when the something is of that temperature and it's placed in a utensil, then Halakha tells us that the flavor goes into the walls in general. Now there are exceptions, but in general, flavor goes into the walls. That even though I may clean my pot of the food, let's say I cooked uh, meat in a certain pot, and I clean my pot, you cannot see anything in the pot. It's crisp and clean. Still, 
being that I cooked in this pot, the food that was inside this pot was hot, flavor went into the pot, and when what happens is, the next time I cook into this pot, what happens is that this flavor will come out and come back into the food. Ask any chef in the world, he'll tell you the same thing. When you cook something, even though you clean it, you may use your dishwasher to clean it. Afterwards, when you cook again, the flavor comes back into your food. Now, we may not be able to taste it ourselves. It takes a kepela, a person who is an expert to be able to really feel if the flavor went in or not. We don't have that expertise today, but that's the reality of what happens. When flavor goes into the walls of the pot and you're cooking now a new item, flavor comes back. What if that flavor was something that's forbidden? So now you have your food. Your food has bili'ot itself has flavor from what was in the walls, which was forbidden. Therefore, you can have an issue of eating that because we hold, according to the Psaq Shuhan Aruch, that ta'am ka'ikar. That is a biblical law, which means you, not only is the item that the Torah forbade forbidden to eat, meaning let's take a hazir, a pig. We all know non-kosher meat. Non-kosher meat is not kosher, right? That's what's called non-kosher meat. Okay, so you cannot eat non-kosher meat. We all know that. But if you cook non-kosher meat in the pot and the flavor goes into the walls and then afterwards when you cook a second time kosher food, the flavor comes out of the walls of the pot, goes into your kosher meat, you have a flavor of non-kosher in your kosher meat that's also forbidden. That's called ta'am ka'ikar. The flavor is as, as if you're eating the item itself. This is a biblical law according to the Shohan Aruch and according to Mos Rishonim. Tam Kaikar is the Oraita. And therefore, you're going to tell me one second, one second. I, I don't know much about Kashru, but I know one thing that you can't uh, trick me on. And that is what if there's Shishim, Batel Shishim, Rabbi? One out of six, it could be Batel Shishim. What Batel Shishim means is that if you have 60 times, whenever there's a mixture of kosher and non kosher, if I have 60 times the amount of kosher flavor, outnumbering the kosher flavor, then it's batel. The, the non-kosher flavor, as, it's as, as if it's not there because we're not dealing with actual items over here, we're dealing with just flavor. And why are you telling me now the pots, if the flavor goes into the pots, of oh, the walls of the pots, and then I have to kosher my pots, what do you mean? It's going to be batel b'shashim. And the answer to your question is that you'll never have. It's very, very, very unlikely and rare to find a pot where the contents now cooked in the pot will be 60 times more than the flavor that's absorbed in the walls. I don't have time right now to figure, to show you mathematically, but that's how the post keep bring down. That's the reality. You won't find such a case. You won't find that a pot will be able to hold contents inside of it, which will be 60 times more than the walls of the pot. So that's why when the flavor goes into your pot, if it's a forbidden flavor, you must make sure to take it out if you want to use that again for kosher food. That is bili'ot. When we say bili'ot, they are bili'ot, they are bili'ot. Bili'ot means bli'is in Lashon Ashkenaz. Bili'ot means that there's flavor into the walls, in the walls of the utensils that we're using, whether it be a spoon or a pot or anything else. Terminology number two that we'll be discussing is something called mamashut. Mamashut means substance, where you can actually feel it. It's the flavor that's absorbed into the walls. If you close your eyes and you run your hand by the walls, by the inside of the walls of the pot, you won't feel anything. And if you do, I don't know, I, I don't know what to tell you. There's no such a thing. <laughs> Go get yourself checked out. Your fingers or your brain, you know, whatever. But mashut is different. Mamashut is that 
there is substance. There's something there. That means, let's say you cooked chicken in a pot, and you clean your pot, but there's some chicken that's stuck on the bottom, you know, like you have in the bottom of the chalam pot. That's called mamashut. Mamashut, unlike flavor, is something different. Mamashut is there. It's the actual food that keeps on coming back. You can't say batel. That's right there in the in the place. It's not like the flavor where it can become batel or this is mamash there. And it's more stringent than a regular flavor, as we'll explain later on when we talk about ben yomo, not ben yomo. Right now, you should know that mamashut has stringencies more than flavor has. Next, regarding mamashut, another thing that we should know, sometimes there could be mamashut, there's substance that's stuck to the pots or to the ovens or whatever it may be, and they are stubborn. What does it mean stubborn? It means I tell them to leave, they don't want to leave. So they don't want to leave. I put water on them, they don't want to leave. I scrub them, they don't want to leave. I spray easy off, they don't want to leave. They're stuck there, they just don't want to come out. Sometimes you'll have that. Sometimes you have some foods are stuck and no matter what you do, you, you can't get them out. In such a case, when they're stubborn and they don't want to leave, then you could make that food inedible to the point that even a dog will not eat it. This is known in halakha as You could be pogim, which means you could disqualify that substance to the point that it's completely inedible by spraying, let's say, easy off on it or some sort of chemical on it that will make it inedible to even for animal consumption. At that point, we look at the mamashud, the substance, as nothing more than a bunch of ashes. That is another terminology, mamashud. Next terminology that we're going to discuss is something known as benyomo or eno benyomo. These terminologies are found very, very often. Benyomo, eno benyomo. From the Torah, we find, like we just mentioned, that if something is forbidden, then the pots that they were made in is also forbidden. The flavor that remains in the walls, according to the Torah, it's also forbidden. However, they're only forbidden from the Torah for the first 24 hours since they were used. After 24 hours from the Torah, they're not forbidden. They're only forbidden rabbinically from Midera Banan. Again, midoraita. if you let's take a case, a person would take a piece of non-kosher meat and he would cook it in a pot, and now the flavor goes into the walls. Torah, if the food was cooked at 3 p.m. on Sunday, the, the pot has a flavor that's asur in its walls, and it will be asur midoraita until the next day, Monday, at 3 p.m. 24 hours will be asur midoraita. However, if a person wants to cook in this pot, at 4 p.m. on Monday, according to the rules of the Torah, the flavor that's in the walls is not a good flavor anymore. It's after 24 hours, the flavor that comes out will not be a good flavor. As long as that pot wasn't used for the last 24 hours, the flavor that comes out is not a good flavor. It's called in Hebrew, Tam Pagum. It's a defected flavor. And therefore, Minha Torah, it's not Asur. However, although it's not forbidden from the Torah, it's forbidden midera banan. Hachamim will the flavor even past 24 hours. And why? And this is very simple. Most people cannot, don't have a timer on their pots. When it's mutar, when it's going to be 24 hours, when it's not going to be 24 hours. If we allow you to use a pot after 24 hours where the forbidden flavor came into it, we're scared that you might come to use it also within 24 hours. So that's why 
all pots, no matter when, will, when you use them, when the flavor went in, as long as a forbidden flavor went into the pots, those pots must be koshered. And therefore, benyomo or eno benyomo, you cannot use it. If the pot has a forbidden flavor, that you cannot you, you cannot use that pot, not only within the first 24 hours, that's that's middoraita. Even after 24 hours, you're not allowed to use it because that's asur middirabbanan. What's the, what's the difference? Why are you telling me this halakha? At the end of the day, it's all asur. What do I care if it's right at the banan? And the answer is that in a case where it was done by the abad, which means a person already cooked in a pot that he was not supposed to cook in. And then he realized that this pot was only used for the last time I used it, which is not kosher, was more than 24 hours ago. Meaning, on Sunday by accident, somebody cooked non-kosher meat in your pot. By now, you put that pot away, you wanted to cook it, you wanted to kosher it, but you don't have time to kosher it until Wednesday. Tuesday, one of your kids comes, takes out the pot, and cooks in it kosher food. So, since they used it on, which is past 24 hours since it was used on Sunday, then the food is only kosher bidi abad. It's done already, we let it go. But lechat hila means to say if they come to use that pot, you have to write asur, you cannot use that pot. As long as it has a non-kosher flavor in it, you cannot use it. Even after Monday, even after the 24-hour period, it only makes a difference when it's not benyomo, eno benyomo, when the food was cooked in the spot, bidi'abad already, we allow it. We don't. We say that the flavor is pagum, the flavor is not a good flavor, and it's not going to forbid what you cooked. Next terminology that we want, we need to understand in halakha is something that's now relevant, really not only to our, um, what's it called, kosher and not kosher, but we find this terminology also by Shabbat. And that is something called klirishon, klisheni, and iruim klirishon. What do these terminologies mean? Literally, klirishon means the first utensil. Klisheni means the second utensil. Iru means pouring. Let's explain what these terminologies mean. We're not, again, we're not using any practical halakhot right now. We're just giving you these terminologies. You should be familiar with them. Klirishon means any utensil that was warmed up directly on the fire. That could be either a pot in an oven a pot on a fire, or it could be the water urn that you plug into the wall. That's called klirishon. That's where the cooking took place. That's called klirishon. Klirishon has the same status. That's where the food was cooked. If it's yatsalitbo, if it's so hot, that's yatsalitbo, it has the same status whether it's on the fire or off the fire. Meaning, if I had a pot on the stove and the Something's cooking inside of it. It's very, very hot. Obviously, it's on the fire. Even when I remove the pot of the fire and I put it down on my counter, that pot is called klirishon. As long as that pot was warmed up on the fire and it's still hot from the fire, then that has the status in halakha called klirishon. When I take that pot and I pour it into a second pot that was not on the fire previously, I took it from the closet and I poured now the contents from the first keli into the second keli. That's called klisheni. It klisheni already has a lower level, obviously, of stringency than clearly shown. Obviously, it will make a difference in which you know where the halakha. We're just giving you now a heads up when we get to these halakha lemaaseh. That is klisheni. Klisheni shown is the part that was on the fire. Klisheni is when the contents were removed from klisheni shown and poured into the second keli. Hirui. 
Airui means in between Kliyusha and Kliyusheni. Airui means as I'm pouring from the first utensil that was on the fire, when that water or whatever the contents are going airborne, before they get inside the Kliyusheni, what is the status at that point? From the point that they leave Kliyusha until the point that they hit Kliyusheni, what is the halachic status at that point? There's mahlok in Rishonim, if it's considered like Rishon, That is given the terminology Irui from Rishon. You have to keep that in mind when we come to talk about kosher in the utensils. Finally, the fifth thing that we're going to speak about, the last thing we're going to speak about, is something that's only relevant for us as far as Hametz is concerned, and that is a terminology called Isurabala or Heterabala. We find in the Gemara that there's a way to kosher utensils, but based on what flavor came in, meaning to say like this. The Gemara tells us that had I taken a knife, or let's say a skewer, and I've taken now something that's asur, let's say non-kosher meat, and I made a kebab on it, you know, the kufta kebab or meat basically, I took ground beef and I put it directly on the skewer. And with that, I barbecued my kebab. Now, I realize afterwards that the kebab, after it was cooked and everything, oh my gosh, it's not kosher. So, of course, I throw out the kebab. That's not a question. Question, what is the status now of the skewer that I have in my hand? It was directly on the fire. How do I remove the flavor from the skewer that I used to barbecue the non-kosher meat? The answer is, you do the same way it came in. That's how you take it out. Which means you need libun. Libun hamur. You have to blowtorch that skewer. You have to blowtorch it to the point that either sparks come out or turns red. That's the way you kosher that skewer. However, we find somewhere else that when it comes to the Beit HaMikdash, they used to also cook food in the Beit HaMikdash, the meat from the korbanot that they used to bring. They used to, some of them were eaten by the owners, some of them were eaten by the Kohanim. The Lachat tells us that they had a certain limitation. They couldn't be eaten after a certain amount of time. We find over there that when that time came, mean to say, let's say Korban was only allowed to be in by Monday afternoon. So now it's Monday evening. Tuesday, you want to use the same pots to cook with it. So in that case, even though they were used to roast the meat on the fire, just like the non-kosher food, in that case, the share, the way to kosher the utensil is simply by doing hagala. Hagala is much less intense than libun hamur, than burning out the, the, the flavor inside of it. Hagala means you dip it with hot, into hot boiling water that's on the fire. That's much simpler. It's called Lipun, it's, you can even do it Lipun Kam, which means you could also put it in a warm place, put it in an oven up to, let's say, uh, around 325 degrees. That's not a lot. That, that's pretty easy. What's the difference though? Both of them are Asur. Notar is also Asur. And Taref is also Asur. Why in one case we find the Gemara tells us you kosher it in a more restrictive way, Lipun Hamur. In another case, you tell me, all you need is Lipun Kal. The easy way, Hagala, simply. You just... You know, warm it up up to 325 and that's good enough. And the answer is because there's a difference of how the flavor came in. Taref is not kosher. That's asur. It's called isurabala. It came in as asur. When it comes in as asur, then already you have to kosher in the more, in the stricter way. However, when it comes to kadashim, when I cooked in it, the meat of the korbanot from the beginning was mutar. It only became forbidden after two days because then 
it's past the time that the Torah allowed me to eat those meats or the flavor of the meats of the korbanot. So that's why, since it turned from heter to isur only later on, but when it came, it came beheter. Therefore, I can use the lighter way of koshering something. That's called heterabala. When it comes to hametz, there's a mahlokit exactly what, how do you categorize hametz. Since hametz comes in when the time when I'm allowed to eat it, so is that called heterabala? Or do we say that since hametz becomes forbidden during the holiday of Pesach, then that's called isurabala? Why? Because it's not like the case of. Korbanot, over there, it came in as regular kadashim, as regular meat, and then it turned to a new name called notar. But over here, it came in as hametz, and it's remained hametz. The only thing is, hametz itself was permitted before Pesach and forbidden after Pesach. So what's a, what's a halakha? Guess what? It's a mahlokit. It's a mahlokit. However, the Beit Yosef brings down the name of Rabbi Yuham, who's a student of the Rosh, that the majority of the poskim hold that... Hametz is considered Isurabala, which means when we have to kosher our utensils for Hametz, we have to use the more intensive way, the more strict, the stricter way of koshering it. That is also the psak of the Shohan Aruch himself. Those are the terminologies that are really as an introduction to coming to kosher our kitchen. I know that most people may not be, uh, didn't follow so much, but we have it recorded. If you're ever interested to delve into it deeper or to understand really why we kosher and how we kosher things, you have it now recorded. You go, go back to the beginning of the this class and see why and how we do certain things. Now we're going to actually get to the halakha lima'aseh. We're going to come to talk now how to kosher our kitchen. Before we come to talk how to kosher our kitchen, I just want to let you know that if you go online, we have videos showing how to kosher most utensils in the kitchen. Um, we hope to get to a point when we're able to video and show almost every utensil in the kitchen, but we have what we have so far. We have the ovens, we have the sinks, we have the counters, we have spoons and silverware and uh, plates. You'll see it over there on those videos. Baruch Hashem, uh, many people have been watching these videos. I've got a lot of good positive feedback. And of course, if you have any comments, please let me know regarding the videos. If we have any area that we erred or things, please let us know. In any case, you go over there if you want to see Halakha Lema'aseh of Hara Kosher. Now, today, we are going to talk Halakha Lema'aseh of Hara Kosher utensils. Some few rules before we start talking about Hara Kosher your utensils. Number one is, any parts that you're not planning to use on Pesach, even though you know that it has hametz flavor in it and you cooked with the hametz throughout the year, you don't need to kosher it. Just put them away. Make sure you make a mark for yourself not to use them. For example, you have pots that you cook noodles in it. Spaghetti. Throughout the whole year, you always use this pot to cook spaghetti. Obviously, you're not going to cook spaghetti in it on Pesach. And let's say you're not planning to use it for Pesach. You're not planning to cook in it something that's not hametz like rice or whatever it may be. You could take that pot, store it away, and make for yourself a siman, a sign, to know not to use it on Pesach. That's it. You don't have to worry about koshering it. You don't have to get rid of the flavor inside of your walls. You're allowed to use them after Pesach, no problem. Here, we're only talking about things that you're planning to use on Pesach that were used before Pesach. Next, there's a rule, and the rule is, The way flavor comes in, that's the way it's got to come out. What does it mean? That's where it's got to come out. It doesn't mean you use the same method. It means like this. Whatever way flavor came in, as we're going to talk about in a second, whatever way the flavor came into the pots, that's your, there's a method according to halakha of how to remove it. And what is that method? There are four methods of how to kosher your, how to kosher your, your items from 
that from Hametz to Kasher Pesah. And we're going to discuss these four right now. Let's begin with probably the most common way of koshering, uh, or the most common, the, the utensils are most commonly uh, koshered, or the way they need to be koshered, something known as Haga'ala or Libun Kal. This applies to food when the flavor comes in through liquid. Meaning, if I have a bowl that I usually cook in it soup. What kind of soup do I cook? Well, usually I cook in it, you know, mushroom barley soup, vegetable soups. Oh, but you use it to cook hametz in it? Yeah. So since I'm using it to cook hametz in it, how did the hametz go into the walls of the pot? And the answer is by being warmed up through liquid. It wasn't direct contact with dry hametz. It was through liquid. Oh, so if it went in through liquid, then then the way to kosher it is through hagala or libunkal. What, is the, what does hagala mean and what does libunkal mean? We'll begin first with libunkal because it's much simpler. Libunkal means you put it, you warm it up to the point basically of getting to the temperature, as Ole Tzion explains, 150 degrees Celsius, which translates into around... 325 degrees Fahrenheit. The reason why I gave that number 325, although it's not an exact number, is because that's pretty much what the temperature will be on your oven. They go, I think, in 25 degree intervals. 300, 325, 350, whatever it is. 325 degrees for 30 minutes, which means if you have pots that you cooked in it, your mushroom barley soup, and now you want to kosher that pot for pesa, you could make sure it's clean, put it in your oven, for 325, of course, your oven has to be also be kosher pesa. We'll talk about that later. 325 degrees for 30 minutes, and that's good. This can be used instead of hagala. However, hagala itself, which people would like to use, then hagala works in the following way. Hagala is you go and you take the pot, whatever you want to kosher, you clean it very well. Wash, make sure there's no substance, there's no mamashut, like we mentioned beforehand. If there's mamashut, you didn't gain anything. Make sure there's no mamashut. We're trying to get rid of the bilayot over here, the flavor inside the walls. Afterwards, you take water, you put it on the fire in a kosher lapesa, preferably kosher lapesa pot, and the pot that you have the hot boiling water inside of it should obviously be bigger than the pot that you're planning to kosher. You put it on the fire, and you wait for the water to be bubbling. Once the water gets to the bubbling stage, by the way, if you want the water to remain bubbling, there's a trick. You take certain stones and you put them in the pot of water. This keeps the water bubbling. Okay? That's a trick that you, you could use. Also, it's good, it's good, it's good if you want to. It's not ma'ikaradim, but it's good to add palmolive to that bubble to that pot of water that's on, on the fire that you're using for hagala. This way it's considered tam pagum. It, it's, uh, it's better for those who understand what I'm talking about. If you get apam olive. If you don't have apam olive, it's fine. The water is bubbling hot. And now that water is bubbling on the fire, now you're ready to kosher whatever utensil you want to kosher. How do you kosher it? The item that you want to kosher must be completely immersed into the hot boiling water. It doesn't have to be like a mikveh where it has to be completely immersed at the same time. You could immerse it Partially, different parts, but you have to immerse the whole thing. And not only is the pot itself have to go in, but even the handles must go inside of it, inside the water. And like we, you'll see on the video, which you can find on the JRoot Radio website. You can also find it on YouTube. Just write over there, type over there my name, and write koshering 
the kitchen, I think, or the koshering utensils, one of those two lishonot, and you'll see over there the, the videos online. I think it's on YouTube. I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube. Yeah. Next, after you immersed your kili that you wanted to kosher inside the hot boiling water, it's good, it's good, it's not an obligation, but it's good to rinse it with cold water right afterwards, and you have a kosher pot for Pesach. That's the method that's called Haga'ala. Okay? That's method number one. Method number two, Libun Hamur. Much less common. Most people do not do Libun Hamur today. Some still do. You go to certain areas, they have, you know, koshering circles or whatever, and they kosher utensils. They still have the blowtorch. It's, it's done, but it's not so common. But we'll have to explain because we brought down Halakha. What is Libun Hamur? And when is it needed? When the hamets came in dry without any means of liquid, then the only way you can get rid of it is by blowtorching it to the point that, as Halakha says, sparks come out or the metal turns red. That means it gets so hot that it starts to turn red. Then you know that the flavor came out and it's good. Give you an example. For example, if a person is uh, making pancakes, right? Pancakes is flour and water. And you're pouring it directly on a grill. So that grill that you're pouring it on has hametz that's directly on it. And that hametz that's directly on it is through no liquid. There's no liquid over there. It starts as liquid, but eventually becomes dry. It becomes, becomes yavesh. So therefore, the way to get out that hametz, if you want to use it for pesa, is through libun hamur. Method number three is something called Irui. Similar to what we said beforehand when we discussed Kalish on Kalishani. What is Irui? Irui is when you're poor. When Hamet has gone into a food from Irui Kalishon, which means I, I had Hamet in a bubbling hot pot on the fire. And then I took that pot that's on the fire and I poured it into something else. So now the Hamet went and it hit it. It hit the utensil. Usually this happens by serving trays. And it hit it. Then I have to get rid of the hametz in the same way. I have to pour hot boiling water from a kliri shon. I have to pour the hot boiling water on this area where the hametz fell in order to kosher it for Pesach. Finally, the last method of koshering utensils from hametz to being kashet Pesach is something called in Hebrew, means rinsing. Rinsing can be done with regular cold water. It doesn't have to be hot water. That is another form of koshering your utensils for Pesach. There are other forms, but these, are the, I felt, are the main ones. And the examples that we're going to give in most common kitchens will be based on these four methods. Of course, there are thousands of different possibilities and utensils. We're not here to discuss all of them, but we're here only to discuss the main ones. Now, before we come to practical examples, let's just tell you a few, two halakhot. Number one is that although for the flavor to come out, I mean to say that for the, let's say the forbidden flavor to come out into your kosher food could only happen through hot water, through something hot, meaning, let's say I had... Um, Let's say I had a spoon that was that I've been using to eat my hametz soup throughout the year. Now I want to use the same spoon on Pesach for something that's kasher Pesach, but not hot. It's going to be cold. 
Although technically you're right, the flavor will not come out from the hot from the spoon because there's no, it's not hot now, and you need hot to bring out the flavor. It's still, it's a sort to use any utensil that has not been koshered unless you kosher it properly. This applies not only in Pesach, but also when it comes to utensils that have been used throughout the year for dairy and meat or um, forbidden flavor that went into it and, you know, not for, and, and you're trying to use it for a kosher meal. That's also, once an item is required to be koshered, it cannot be used unless you kosher it, even though you're planning to use it in cold, through something cold. That is an important halakha to keep in mind. Then the second halakha to keep in mind is that regarding the methods that we mentioned beforehand of koshering your utensils, if you use one of these methods to kosher your utensils, and the way, and if you're going to have to use them, it's going to ruin your keli, it's going to ruin your utensil, you are not allowed to kosher it. Even though you say, no, I'm not, I'm going to do it, you cannot kosher it. If, let's say you have soft plastic, and you used it, let's say, in a way that you need to do Hagalah on it, whatever it may be. Let's say you use it in a way that you need Hagalah on it, then you, and by doing Hagalah, by the way, it's going to melt, that's it, you can't kosher it. Even though you're going to say, let me take a chance, you can't take a chance, once it could be ruined, you cannot use it to kosher, you have to store it away and use it after Pesach. Let's get to practical examples in our kitchen. Let's begin with the most common example that everybody asks on and pretty much we're all going to have to use is what about my oven? How do I kosher my oven that was hametz to make it kashel lapesa? Number one is if you have a self-clean mode, that's the best way. What self-clean is, basically it locks up your oven. Usually the oven has a thermometer. And I think the most residential ovens go up to about 550 degrees. So when the thermometer feels that's 550 degrees in here, it says, whoa, 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 okay, that's getting too hot, stop. You cannot go above 550 degrees. We stop. The oven stops working. And maybe it will reach 560, 570, but it will not go higher than that. The self-clean mode allows the fire to continue burning and to continue going. And the thermometer shuts off and goes to sleep. So it allows the temperature to reach a very high temperature, sometimes 900 and above. So the self-clean mode is the best way. You put on your self-clean mode and let it self-clean. However, not everybody likes to use this. A lot of people get nervous and say, oh, I might ruin my oven, might ruin my, my, my kitchen, and my, okay, I don't know. You don't want to get suntan, whatever it may be. People don't want to use the self-clean mode. It's fine. Or people don't have the self-clean mode. It's not, you know, it's not the best, but okay. So you go to the next step. The next step is if you don't have a self-clean mode, then what you do is the following. This is the way I've seen it in many post scheme. For those who are permitting the use of kosher, or excuse me, for those who are permitting the koshering of of of, uh, of an oven, this is what you do. First of all, clean the oven very very well. Use easy off. Make sure there's no mamashut. There's no substance that's stuck to the walls. And even if it's stuck and it's being stubborn that doesn't want to come out, use easy off. And this way, you makes it pagum as we explained above. Next. Wait 24 hours of not using the oven. That's going to be hard if you're planning, you know, to cook right away. So make sure you set yourself. Don't use the oven for 24 hours. Then put on the oven to the highest temperature that you have. Whatever it may be. 450, 500, 600, whatever you have in your oven, put it on the highest temperature. Preferably three hours if you could do that. If you can't do three hours, then ask your posek. Maybe you can do one or two. But this is the suggested time that we gave three hours for sure that will be fine remember this is since you want to be your say all she taught 
only rely on this way of kosher in the oven is when you have no other option. You don't have a Pesach oven. If you have a Pesach oven, then don't kosher your regular oven. Use your Pesach oven. That's the best way. That's what most people do in Israel, even though they have those tiny little apartments. Also, the koshering method that we said over here only works for ovens that have fires. The ones that have electric, like a toaster oven, it, you cannot do this in a toaster oven. It's much more complicated. That already, you store it away, put it away, don't use it for Pesach. And if there's a real need to, speak to your posik, see what he tells you to do. Another thing to keep in mind when regarding the ovens, this is the way you kosher the oven, but not the shelves or the racks inside the oven. The shelves and racks inside the oven depend. If you usually have them covered with aluminum foil, so anyway, you, haven't, you don't have an issue, they're always covered. If you don't have them covered with aluminum foil, but you're a person that never puts hamet directly on it, hamet is usually in a pot, or it's in a, uh, or it's in, basically in a pan, you don't put pita, you don't put bread directly on the oven racks, like most of us usually don't do that. So in that case, you're, the, when you kosher your oven, you can keep the racks inside as long as they're clean, and they'll be koshered. But if you actually put hamets directly on the racks, or on the shelves in the oven, then it needs libun gamur, as we explained above, which is through the blowtorch. And it, since the bungamur will probably destroy your shelves in the oven, then get new racks for Pesach. Now, I have to point out that not everybody agrees on koshering an oven for Pesach. Therefore, you must ask your Rav. A lot of people, I've seen a lot of poskims, Faradim and Ashkenazim, that hold that you can't kosher your oven for Pesach. So therefore, you have to ask your Rabbi if he allows you to kosher your oven. If he does, then you could use the methods that we explained to you. Even for those who forbid using the oven for Pesach, they'll agree that if you cover the walls with heavy-duty aluminum foil that will not fall off on Pesach, or if you get yourself a metal insert, then fine, the flavor that's on the walls will not come inside your food, and your food that's kasher Pesach will be protected again, keeping in mind that the shelves and the racks inside the oven are replaced to, to uh, uh, replaced and using kosher for Pesach racks or trays. Next household item that needs koshering that people will ask about is a microwave. How do we kosher a microwave on Pesach? So first of all, like we said beforehand, clean the microwave very well. The microwave is usually plastic on the inside and has a glass bowl on the bottom. So therefore, after you clean it very well, don't use it for 24 hours. I'm just giving you halakha lemasi. I can't explain the reasons right now. I see some of the text people are already asking questions. I'll answer you later on. Or when we're off the air. Right now, I just need to give halakha lemasi before we finish, we, before we're up on time. Don't use the, 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 the oven for 24 hours, excuse me, the microwave for 24 hours. Then you do the following. You put, you can put back the glass because Sfaradim hold that the glass plate, glass doesn't absorb on Pesach. We consider it smooth and it doesn't, absor never absorb throughout the year. So you have to worry that maybe it comes out. So for the Sfaradim, you can put back the glass um, plate that's usually in, or the tray that's usually inside the microwave take yourself a microwave safe plastic put inside of it water add some palm olive and put it on the highest temperature that you excuse me put it for the longest time in the microwave that you usually use it for 
I've asked around, people don't, I've never heard anybody using his microwave for longer than seven minutes. So I put it on for seven and a half minutes, seven minutes and 30 seconds. By that time, you open up your microwave, you'll see that the water completely evaporated, went completely into the walls. You do another cleaning and your microwave is good to use for Pesach. If you Ashkenazi, since we, you hold that, the glass does absorb hametz, and you cannot use it for Pesach, so therefore replace the glass tray for Pesach and the rest should be fine. Next, metals. Metals, how do you caution metals? So let's begin. Pots. If you have pots that you want to use, that are hametz, you want to use it for Pesach, then you do hagala. Put it in hot boiling water. This applies even to pressure cookers. Even though it cooks intensely, it still applies. However, frying pans which are used when there's direct hamets, uh, hamet, hamets on it, when there's direct hamets that goes directly on it, and these frying pans, since you have direct hamets on it and it's done on a regular basis, then you need to do libun on it, libun hamur, not libun ka, libun hamur with the blowtorch. And most probably it might get ruined, so therefore you're going to have to store it away. Let's give you a few examples. Panini machine. Or a toaster, you're putting directly bread on it, and that's the regular way of using it. You can't kosher it through hagala. You can only kosher it through libun hamur. Blowtorching it is not recommended unless you have a lot of money to waste. Just buy yourself a new one because you're not going to be able to kosher that way. In fact, like we said, since it cannot be kosher in such a way, you have to store it away. You don't have to sell it. In fact, you shouldn't sell it. Store it away and use it after Pesach. Other metal items in the house are silverware, like forks, knives, and spoons. And those, since you do use them with hot, just do hagala on them, and you should be fine. Next, grates that are on top of the stoves. Really grates, really, it is enough to rely on that you don't need to kosher it, but the minhag is to do it anyway. Sfaradim and Ashkenazim. It all depends also how you use it. By the way, I want to point, point out, for those that usually warm up their bread directly on the grate, it's a big problem. Because what happens is, a lot of times you're cooking on, those, on that grate pots, which are dairy and meat, and they spill. A lot of times they spill. If you don't know that they spill, you probably didn't spend enough time in the kitchen. Ask people who cook, and they'll tell you, of course it spills. So you have on the grates flavor of dairy and meat on it. Although there are different... She thought if it goes into the grates, over the grates, does it burn? Does it? At the end of the day, there's flavor of meat and dairy and enough poskim that will say it. So when you're putting that pita of yours or that bread of yours to warm up on the, you know, to give it a little bit of a toast of a crunch or to defrost it, then what you're doing is you're having the flavor of the meat and dairy that's inside the grates going right back into your pita or into your bread. And that's a big problem. So therefore, you cannot warm up pita on the grates. You cannot warm up bread on the grates in general, throughout the whole year. And if you usually do warm it up, but you have separate, let's say, dairy and meat, and you're not, now you want to kosher for Pesach, so it needs, and you use it on a regular basis, then you need Libun Gamur. If you don't use it on a regular basis, the Minhag is that we do Hagala on it. Next, hot plate. A hot plate, so also technically, it all depends. If you're a person that usually uses um, aluminum foil on your hot plate throughout the whole year, so then, that's it. Just replace aluminum foil. If you're a person that doesn't usually use it with aluminum foil and you and you don't have another hot plate, so cover it up with heavy-duty aluminum foil, especially if you usually warm up on it like lahmacun or bread or whatever it may be. So definitely you'll have 
make sure you cover up with aluminum foil, heavy-duty aluminum foil. The same goes with the blech. Although blech, people warm up bread directly on it, and technically it should require libun gamur, in this case, it's going to ruin the blech. They're very thin. So you cover it with heavy-duty aluminum foil or just get yourself a new one. If you never warm up any bread on, directly on it, so technically you don't have to worry about it. Just cover it up and you'll be fine or even wash it and you'll be fine. Sinks, the metal sinks that is, Again, for Svaladin, really, we shouldn't have a worry because most of the time we only use a sink with cold water. Yes, a few times we'll use it with hot boiling water, but according to Al Khali, really, you don't need. But the minhag is to kosher it, and this can be done in a number of ways either by doing irui, which means you pour hot water on the sink, or by putting a plastic, you buy these plastic sink inserts, or you can put contact paper in any of these ways. It's the minhag to kosher your sink. Um, stove tops I mean to say you know the, the 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 part where the flame comes out you don't need to kosher no food goes on it and if it goes on it you usually throw it out the stoves you know on the white part of the stove where people do sometimes put food on it that's all depends if you use it on a regular basis you do put food directly on it then you should cover up cover it up with heavy duty aluminum foil you shouldn't do libunga more on it and Irui probably is not recommended either. Just do, like we said, cover up with heavy-duty aluminum foil, so whatever falls on it should not be a problem. Next, people ask about the water urns. Metal water urns, are, you know, the ones that they have in the shuls or sometimes people have it for Shabbos, those metal water urns. If you never warm up your bread on it, you don't need to any koshering. That's it. You can just use it for Pesach. If you usually warm up bread on it, then don't use it for Pesach. Get yourself another one. Glass. Glass is a mahloki between Sfaradim and Ashkenazim. According to Sfaradim, we hold glass does not absorb. And because glass does not absorb, so therefore, no flavor went in. And if no flavor went in, it doesn't need, be, need to be koshered. That's the ruling of Shohan Aruch. That's the minhag of the Sfaradim. If this includes even Pyrex, which is going into the oven and it's heavy, it doesn't make a difference. Even though there's some opinions that say maybe there's some metal that they mix together with the glass, at the end of the day, the Psaq of Shohan Aruch and the Poskim, and that's Minhag of the Sfaradim, is that glass does not need to be koshered. The Ashkenazim are mahmir, that they hold that glass absorbs and it doesn't come out. That's Humrah of Pesach. It doesn't even come out. So for Ashkenazim, any glass that was used with Hametz is off limits for Pesach, cannot be koshered. You cannot use it for Pesach. Put it away. You'll use it after Pesach. We have a few more items over here, but I see I'm up on time. And therefore, I have to stop here. Next week, Rezat Hashem will be the final class before Pesach. And although I would really like to go through this list because, you know, I don't know if people are, pretty much everybody's coaching their kitchen right now. I, I'm doing, you know, I'm limited on time. I cannot continue. Call in right now to the station 718-683-5858. And we'll take your questions off the air. We'll answer any household items that you want to know about. Next week, we'll finish off where we stopped. We'll talk about porcelain, wood for mica, plastics, barbecues, fridges and freezers, all the other household items that we skipped. We'll talk about also about selling hametz, should you sell, should you not sell hametz, what kind of matzah to use, and finally some halakhot of Eid Pesach. And hopefully, hopefully we'll try to squeeze all that in next week. Till then, we'll see you. Have a wonderful week. And Shabbat Shalom and Hakashem Vesameah.